Hey, what's going on? Jason Bay here. I'm your host. You're listening to Blissful Prospecting, and this podcast is for reps and sales leaders who love leaning big meetings with their prospects, but hate when their team is a little bit reluctant to pick up the phone and, and talk to some of those more senior executive level folks. Today, I'm super excited. I'm talking to Marcus Couchy, and this guy just has a ton of experience. I mean, he's got decades of experience as a sales leader. He's chief revenue officer at White Rabbit Intel. He's got a bunch of other stuff going on as well. <laughs> you know, the dude is just a wealth of knowledge. And let's get to the episode today. Okay, where to start with this one? One of the <laughs> one of the things that we talk about a lot is this concept of business acumen and creating expert advisors. So how do you create a team of people that can have really smart conversations with your prospects? His whole thing, Marcus's whole thing is how do we remove the 95% of waste and hidden cost in outbound? Because it's not just the cost of the employee, it's the technology. It's all the man and woman hours that are spent going after prospects that are not a good fit, that don't want to talk to you. The timing's not well, et cetera. We talk about that quite a bit, just the waste in the process and the system and what you can do to reduce some of that waste. The other thing that he talks about too, and this is kind of interesting to me, is what the new frontier of outbound looks like and how to attack this problem of really it being tougher to get our prospects' attention these days, right? I mean, any of the stats that you read show that it takes more and more touches to get a hold of someone these days. And you got a lot of people attacking this problem and kind of going through like, hey, how can I just grind through more data? So these are like your auto dialers and agent-assisted dialing and all this other stuff. And then you got people saying, hey, how can we use more of a sniper rifle, for lack of a better analogy, type of approach, so that we're going after specifically people that we know would be a good fit and spending all of our time going on in on those people to get their attention so that growing headcount isn't the only way to grow. It's how do we increase the efficiency and the output? of each individual rep. So if those are things that you've been thinking about as a sales leader, you're definitely going to find this conversation interesting. The other thing too as a rep is, I think this will give you a really good 10,000 foot perspective on what's going on you know, at a lot of these companies. Marcus has got a lot of just really good stuff he's going to share. So before we get to this, if you're a sales leader and you're listening to this and uh, you've been listening to the podcast for a while and you're thinking, hey, I'd love for my team to be able to do some of these you know, tactics and strategies that we shared around getting meetings through calls and emails and LinkedIn, that sort of stuff, hit me up. My email is jason at blissfulprospecting.com. Put help in the subject line. Let me know a little bit more about what you're looking for. And I'd love to tell you more about our training, coaching programs, all that sort of stuff, how we're helping teams like yours getting more meetings with our ideal clients. So let me know if I can help. Let's get to the episode. So I figured where we start, because, you know, we've collaborated one one time uh, before on a webinar, and uh, that was the first time I had seen your stuff, and I did some poking around, like, oh, this guy's got a diverse amount of experience. I mean, how did you get into the sales game? How did you get into all of this stuff? I always wanted my own business, but like everybody else, I thought that selling was all uh, terribly grubby. Okay. And so I planned to be a lawyer. Well, I planned to be a doctor. Mm -hmm. uh, didn't do very well retook my exams, planned to be a lawyer, didn't do very well. Yeah. And uh, managed through, uh, we have something called the clearing system. So for the thick people uh, who didn't do very well, you know, the leftover um, dregs of courses. And I ended up doing a degree in Middle Eastern studies, 
which turned out to be a really bloody hard degree. Mm-hmm. 36 of us started the course, and four years later, only six of us finished. And so I studied Arabic and Farsi, Turkish and economic history. That had to be the, if you ever want a substitute for Valium, that's it. Ancient Egyptian, all sorts of stuff. Yeah, anyway. Uh, and in my second year, I got a part-time job going to one of these network marketing meetings selling tap attachments and hose pipes and other shit like that. Mm-hmm. And I kind of took a shine to it because on my uh, almost on my first night, I took someone from buying a 50 cents piece of plastic tubing to 136 pound order. Yeah. And this was just through asking questions. And I got terribly excited by this. So I thought I was God's gift to selling. And then I set up my own network marketing business and uh, selling doesn't work in that business. So you can sell stuff to people in network marketing, but you can't sell uh, network marketing to customers through selling. Uh, So then I got on this weird journey of learning to develop myself and Stephen Covey and Tony Robbins and all of that. happens. And then after university, I managed to, through nepotism, get a job as the Australian consul's assistant. And it was the time when Manchester and Sydney were competing for the Olympics. And in fairness, it was a foregone conclusion Sydney would win it because who on God's earth would want to go to the rainy city? And after that, I decided I'd had enough of being a really bad administrator. So it took them over two years to clear the files up after I finished ruining them. And I got a job uh, with a company that was like a precursor to talking pages. Turned out I was pretty good on the phone. Yeah. And never really looked back. So uh, then I did 10 years in recruitment. I did uh, media, sales, recruitment, and then IT and consulting. And I've worked in about 500 different segments of the market. Wow. So with recruiting, I'm kind of curious because that looks like a big part of your career, the earlier part. What parallels do you see with recruiting and selling products and services? All sales are conceptual. It doesn't matter whether you're selling aircraft carriers or hemorrhoid cream or uh, professional services. It's all the same shit, if you'll forgive the pun. (laughs) And the problem is you need to find people who want to move from A to B. And your job is to find out what that better future looks like. If it means that they can sit down without having to use an inflatable cushion, then you've got to find the means by which they can sit down. There are many solutions to their problem, and often they compete directly, but often they're indirect competition. So when I had my sales training business, other people could save uh, companies money. So they could go to cost-cutting consultants. They could go to recruiters. They could go to CRM vendors to solve their sales problems, because at the end of the day, they wanted to keep more money, make more money, spend less, and make their people more effective. So they could do that through online training, through coaching, through training. And recruitment is just a really difficult conceptual sell, because everybody hates recruiters. I mean, most of them hate themselves, which probably explains the massive um, certainly back in the, my day, the massive levels of alcoholism, cocaine. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we used to drink like fishes. I'm amazed that most of us are still alive because we should have had um, you know, cirrhosis. And you know, recruitment, you have to sell to the client. Then you have to sell the job to the candidate. Yep. Then you have to sell backwards and forwards four or five times. And then you have to sell to the spouse through a third party. And then you have to sell back to the client. So it's a really messy process. But ultimately... Uh, What recruitment is, is a solution to a business problem. 
But if you sell it as recruitment, then you're a commodity provider. Yeah. I had a client I worked with in recruitment, and he was placing people at 50% of first year's total gross package. So that included everything, benefits, stock options, golden hellos, car, health, pension, life, you name it. And the person he placed in one of his clients made them $300 million. So whatever he charged them, it was a pittance. Yeah. But the problem is that most people suffer from the mental block of thinking that they're a commodity provider. Yeah, let's dig into this because you mentioned some interesting things. And I I think a good place to start because we're thinking through the lens of leadership. And when I think of leadership, it's how are you educating your reps around this stuff? (laughs) And with problems, you mentioned business problems. And people throw all kinds of labels on this business acumen, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Where do you think that a lot of companies are going wrong in terms of how they educate their reps around the bigger problem that their thing solves versus what the thing actually does itself? I think you're asking a slightly different question, if you don't mind um, me saying. The real question you're asking is how do leaders in companies drive the most productive sales production from their salespeople and win customers who are highly profitable and stick and stay around? But the problem is that it all starts with a really shitty culture at the top, Uh, more often than not driven by investors who have selfish short-term gains in mind. And this all started 40 years ago when Milton Friedman peddled the lie that companies were set up to serve shareholder value. And as a result of that, the customer has now been forgotten and is at the end of this long chain of abuse uh, from leadership through to management, through to marketing, through to sales, through to customer success, through to account development, professional services. And they're this inconvenient afterthought. Everything has to start with the customer front and center, and you build your business from there. And so one of the biggest abuses starts with companies that are led by, frankly, donkeys who believe that you should be focused on revenue growth and new logo acquisition. Yeah. Okay. Let me put this into the context of a good business versus a bad business. Okay. The top 100 SaaS companies on the planet today have a median profit margin of 0%. Okay. These are the top 100 SaaS companies on the planet. Now, I get the business model. Ultimately, what you want to do is you want to grow like wildfire, and then you want to sell for a multiple of whatever your revenues are. And that works fine and dandy in an environment, which we have at the moment, where uh, you have low interest rates. But 30 years ago, there were two main funds. Today, there's something like, um, I think it's 3,000 venture capital firms alone. Okay, And what that's done is it's driven up the cost of investing. So now investors have to put those companies that they invest in into debt. And that debt needs to be serviced. And most of those organizations are so fixated on activity instead of meaningful action that they focus their marketing on filling the top of the funnel with meetings and they don't care. So uh, as a result, what you end up with is reps spending their time because of how they're measured and how they're compensated and how they keep their job focusing on booking meetings with anybody with a pulse. Yeah, They don't focus on pinpointing the people who can actually buy. 
So this is based on the data of 40 million cold calls a year. So it's a very good statistical base. And on average, it takes 33 dial attempts to get one effective unless you are calling a senior exec in IT, in which case it's 46 dial attempts to get one effective. Is this based on Connect and Cells data? This is Connect and Cells data. Now, on average, it takes 14 effectives to get one first meeting. On average, seven out of eight first meetings do not result in a second meeting. That tells you that the salesperson has failed to be timely, contextually relevant, or valuable. Now, when you multiply those out, 33 times 14 times eight, and you've only got one of those going through to a second meeting, i.e. the sale is advancing because you are timely, relevant, and valuable, that means on average you are wasting 99.997% of your effort on what is essentially masturbatory activity. You don't end up producing any progeny. You don't end up with a sale. Yeah. What you end up with is a sunk cost. That's crazy. <laughs> so It's ludicrous. Yeah. Now, when you consider how much it costs to get that lead into the top of that MQL to SQL funnel, and uh, you have people deluding themselves in terms of what their cost of customer acquisition is, because the formula for cost of customer acquisition is total cost of sales and marketing divided by the number of customers acquired. But what they don't take into account is all the hidden costs, all the internal meetings, uh, where 10 people are sat around listening to salespeople lie from their work of fiction, also known as a forecast, which is mostly built on hope. You've got those internal conversations where the pre-sales people are being sucked into the whole process. And you've got maybe one pre-sales to three reps. And that pre-sales person is being sucked dry uh, because they're being pulled from pillar to post, speaking to people who will never buy. Because salespeople don't really understand how to qualify. What they're interested in is a positive response. Now, positive prospects almost never have authority to buy. What they have is an interest in finding out what you know, but they don't want to pay you for it. Or they have the unofficial title of gopher. And so they've been told by someone else to go and find information, or they're just trying to keep their, um, their hand in uh, and become uh, you know, stay educated in what's available in the market. So um, you spend a lot of time as a rep or an SDR talking to people with no authority. Now, it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be speaking to those people because often you can do your primary research with them. Yeah. What you don't want to be doing is turning up to uh, a CXO and asking questions like, well, how many X's do you have? Yeah, how long have you been in business? All this stuff is public domain. You want to have done all the grunt work beforehand. Yeah. So when you turn up, you're asking really interesting, insightful questions. I interviewed a, a guy called Jacques Chamas for my podcast a while back, and he was CFO at Standard & Poor's. Uh, he was COO for Pan Am. This shows how long uh, back that was. And he was uh, CFO for Charles Schwab. Wow. And he said he look, really looked forward to when a salesperson was coming to meet him because he thought he might learn something. 
The problem was 98% of the time he was disappointed. And those meetings lasted two minutes. Yeah. But when a salesperson turned up and said, Jack, been doing our research and we've identified 46 different areas of your business that we believe you might be leaving about $750 million on the table around. Now, I'm pretty sure you don't have the budget to solve all of them. So why don't we spend the next 30 minutes or so identifying the dozen or so that you can invest in? And let's see whether or not it makes sense for us to work together on that. Now, that's going to capture his attention. It's a very different type of approach instead of vomiting up product information. Yeah, a CXO doesn't give a damn about how well your carbungulator works on the rippets um, and how many uh, gigabytes of horsepower yeah. uh, it has. I mean, why the hell would they care? They want to know, can you bring value to my business? Can you help me get closer to my strategic objectives? Is this investment going to help me pro- solve my problems for today and tomorrow and the years to come? What can you help me to replace? But what do reps get taught? Race to a demo. Try and get a meeting, sell them a meeting, and then sell them a demo. The CXO doesn't give a fuck one way or the other. Yeah. What they want to know is, you know, can, can you help me fix my problem? And instead, what you do is you waste a perfectly viable opportunity by turning up and vomiting stuff that no one cares. It's like turning up and showing your ugly um, photos of your ugly children to strangers and wondering why they don't fall in love in the same way you have. So, man, there's so many different ways that we could go here. I'm kind of seeing a theme of this. Uh, I, I mean, I've heard it referred to as, I don't know what you call it, but expert advisors. You know, someone that can come in and actually, like, I want the advice from this person. I want this person's knowledge, that sort of stuff. And it looks like you're about to say something. Sure. My new mentor, Charlie Green, mm-hmm. okay, was the guy who came up with the concept of trusted advisor 30 years ago. And he's written a book called The Trust-Based Selling. Mm-hmm. And he came up with the formula, which is credibility plus intimacy plus something else over uh, low self-orientation equals trust. Yeah. Yeah. Credibility plus reliability plus intimacy. That's it. Divided by self-orientation. The key is low self-orientation. Yeah. And this is where I come back to what I said at the beginning. If you hire people who are competitive with a will to win, who are money motivated, do you think they will have a low self-orientation? Well, they'll probably be very selfish, I would assume, if they're incredibly (laughs) Well, Charlie Green went into an investment bank once where he'd been brought in to speak to the salespeople. And one of the um, investment bankers came up to him and said, Charlie, just so you know what you're dealing with, I'm an investment banker. I don't give a fuck about the customer. The only thing I care about is making money. And that's why I'm in investment banking. Charlie looked him in the eye and says, hmm. You don't think that your customers pick up on that, do you? Well, now, the next bit is really profound. Long-term thinking and long-term behavior delivers short-term results and medium-term results and long-term results. What do you think short-term thinking delivers? Well, I mean, it delivers a little bit of results in the short term on the the activity side of things. It doesn't necessarily produce the results, revenue, well, happy customer, retention, and that kind of thing. Now you've hit the nail on the head there, JB, because let's imagine 
you have a 15% churn rate. Yeah. In three years' time, you've lost 49% of your customers. Yeah. Now, what is the knock-on impact, the tariff that that creates at the front end of the funnel in order to just stand still? Every three years, you have to replace half of your customers because you didn't focus on their outcomes. Salesforce did a really interesting bit of research where they came up with the blinding flash of what should be fucking obvious, which is customer success equals customer outcomes over, i.e. more important than customer experience, times employee experience. Yeah. Okay. The single biggest lever in that formula is employee experience. Now, there was a study of the S&P 500 between 2010 and 2016. And what they found was companies with highly engaged employees, i.e. not pissed off, not burnt out, not feeling like they're treated like cattle off to the slaughter, not constantly in fear of their job, okay, but love coming to work, their destination employer, they care about their people, and above all, they are absolutely obsessed with the customer. So their formula is customer success equals customer outcome. What they pay for is the outcome. Sales training, okay? I have a real beef about the sales training industry Mm -hmm. because most sales trainers sell a little bit of entertainment. The L&D department worries about the happy smile sheets at the end, and they worry about retention. Who gives a damn about retention, okay? If I'm buying training, I want to know that the performance improves and the skills are embedded for life. Yep. I want to see the result. I want the needle to move to the right. If it doesn't do that, the training has failed. But trainers sell that shit quite happily just so that they can turn up, bounce around on the stage, and nothing changes. Managers don't turn up to the training. Yeah. And this is where managers need to understand their job description. Managers have five functions in sales. Hire the best people. You hire the best people, 95% of your management problems go out the window and get the best out of them. That means a proper pre-onboarding, proper onboarding, proper ongoing training with reinforcement, coaching, and accountability with consequences. So no pussyfooting around, no um, mollycoddling. You coach on a regular basis. We know that if people coach three to three and a half hours, per rep per month, average quota attainment is 105%. Where they coach for less than that, average quota attainment 40 to 60%. Um, SRC did a study um, in 2019, their study uh, was that only 44% of reps worldwide hit their target um, and only 13% of teams. And in 2020, that went down to 40% of reps hit their quota. In spite of COVID, Okay, but all it did was it tells us that um, the manager is the most pivotal person in your business. But the route to management is someone slaps you on the shoulder and say, Jason, we've just fired your idiot boss. You are now the idiot boss. Congratulations. And off you go and you do either what was done to you or what you think is best and maybe what you've read in a couple of books. And then you inflict your shitty management behavior on your sales team. And before you know it, um, most of them have gone. Only the good, only the bad ones stay. 
because they know they can't get another job. So if you lose a top talent, you are 50% probable uh, to lose another top talent within six months. Now, that is hugely damaging because one A player is worth three to six times a B player and one B player is worth three to six times a C player. So one A player could easily be worth nine to 36 times a C player. But what do they do? Managers spend their time on firefighting, yeah, and then creating another fire because they don't spend time building their bench. What a manager should be doing on a daily basis is interviewing and selecting candidates. So when a vacancy comes up, they're picking from the best in the market rather than the best compromise candidate who will take the job who is available at that moment. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much that you said there that, (laughs) because I have a lot of thoughts on the manager piece. I mean, it's essentially what you're saying is that if I'm understanding correctly, is that really the problem is with leadership. Yeah. It's, it's, it's top down in the approach and particularly it's the managers are the little, you know, they're the little uh, platoon leaders. If we use a military analogy, they're the ones actually out there executing. And there's so much, I mean, Andy Paul talks about this a lot, but there's so much, you know, millions I think it's billions in the billions actually worldwide invested in rep training, but rarely do managers get any kind of formal training at all. You know, of all the billions spent on sales training in the world, only 3% is spent on managers and they are the most pivotal part of the entire sales operation, Yeah, but they're treated like shit. They are in the most precarious position possible. And the uh, life cycle of a new manager is yeah. probably about 12 months. In a lot of situations, it's a pay cut for the manager. Well, it's a pay cut. So you get paid less for more pressure. And the problem is they don't know how to manage. So what they end up doing, and I see this a lot in startups and uh, in many companies, actually, where you've got the player manager. That never works. Oh, God. Um, Because under pressure, are they going to spend their time coaching their people or making their quota? Of course, they're going to spend it uh, sorting their quota out because that's what pays the mortgage. Yeah. Puts food in their kids' mouths. So again, you've got cheapskate, idiot leadership being driven by greedy investors whose business model is broken and corrupt. Most investors in tech certainly are little better than gamblers and speculators. They are the lieutenants of Satan, as far as I'm concerned, because they take a perfectly good, viable business and ruin it by taking the attention away from serving the customer obsessively into creating rampant growth in order to line the pockets so 80 90% of the companies they invest in will fail all those people will lose their jobs the founders will probably get divorced uh, get estranged from their kids and lose their home uh, because they put a lien on their house um it's just obscene absolutely repellent you look at the top saas companies it's like driving down the strip in vegas yeah in Vegas, you see all of those ph- phenomenal, amazing hotels. Yeah. The backstory of that is the thousands, tens of thousands of ruined lives. The gambling addicts, the families have been broken up, the divorces, the uh, people who've been you know, driven to desperation because of their gambling addiction. Now, I'm, I'm no prude and I'm all for having fun. But if you don't look at the consequences... Yeah of your business model and you're not asking the intelligent questions like, well, why do we do this? So let me give you a really good example of this. Late 1960s, early 1970s, 
the British Army commissioned a study and they had a captain observe artillery gunfire. And he was there with a clipboard, um, his pen uh, and a pad and a stopwatch. And he was watching these gunners fire these heavy artillery. And two of them would carry the heavy shell and a third person would open the back of the breech and then they would shove it in and then close it. And then the two would stand by the back of uh, the gun and then one of them would march 12 paces, turn around, put his right arm behind his back, stand to attention with his uh, left arm up. Now, this whole process took, let's say, 27 seconds. So they could fire two rounds a minute. And he was asking, well, why do you do this? And so he would nod. And when he nodded, then they would fire. Them. Yeah. Why do you do this? And he said, that's the way we were trained to do it, sir. And that's the way we fire the guns in this arms army, sir. Well, he trained you, the gunnery sergeant. So he spoke to the gunnery sergeant. Gunny, why do you teach them to do it this way? Sir, that's the way we were trained to train them. That's the way we train them. That's the way we fire the guns in this man's army, sir. Any idea why? No idea, sir. So anyway, after about two weeks, um, losing his hair, he's down the pub. And outside the, uh, the barracks, there's this pub. And he meets this old geezer who used to be in the gunners, uh, in the artillery. And he says, I just can't fathom this. What, why are they doing this? Oh, that's easy. They're holding the horses. Now, they hadn't had horse-drawn artillery for 40, 50 years. Yeah. But they never questioned their systems and their processes. And tradition is one of those things. What, my third favorite website on the planet is called despair.com. And every office should be covered in their posters. So instead of those wanky motivational posters that say, you know, you've got a runner um, and it says it's lonely on the last mile and eagles dare to soar. <laughs> it has things like tradition. Just because you've always done it that way doesn't mean it's not incredibly stupid. Yeah. And it's got a picture of the Pamplona bull run and all these men being chased by very angry bulls. And that is pretty much it. None of us is as dumb as all of us. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's another great poster to have up on your wall. And the, the, the problem is that most people are stuck in their traditions. And I've kind of given up on my generation. Gen X is Gen Ys. Yeah, Gen X. Uh, Gen X and boomers, forget it. Uh, we're way past it because we're at the top of the greasy pole. Uh, we're looking down. And I don't know if you've ever seen that cartoon. Uh, there's a golden eagle shitting on top of a couple of rooks. Uh, or crows, who's crapping on top of a couple of magpies, crapping on top of you know some sparrows who are shitting on top of a robin, and you got a little blue tit at the bottom covered in crap. Well, the, the little blue tit is the SDR, okay? Then you've got the junior salespeople, then the senior salespeople and your AEs. Then you've got middle management, uh, executive level, and then you've got the CEO at the top uh, or the investor at the top. And that basically is the model. And the problem is that, Unless you build everything around the customer, then the customer will be a forgotten afterthought. So you got to think as the customer. Don't think about them. Think as them. I urge you to read uh, a book called Marketing Rebellion by Mark Schaefer. Another one, The Context Marketing Revolution by Matthew Sweezy. And definitely subscribe to Colin Shaw's why buyers buy blog on LinkedIn, because you need to start thinking as the customer.
you got to humanize your marketing and your selling. Yeah. When you are prepping and you're thinking about your sequences, one of my favorites, if you're not involved in salesborgs.ai, if you haven't yet bought tech-powered sales, then fucking get it. This is the stuff of the fu- that's the future of selling. You need to be able to create sequences, um, which Justin Michael refers to as spears. Yep. And these spears are 18 words long. Why? Because when it turns up on your email, that's the two lines that you get to see in the preview bar. And it needs to create pure curiosity and pure envy. I, I interviewed Mike Bosworth who of Solution Selling Thing. And what he found for 15 years, it always frustrated him. What he found was 80% of people going on training stopped using it 100% within two weeks. And the biggest problem was discovery resistance. Until you've made the other person comfortable and feel safe, they will resist your discovery attempts. Yeah. So I recently uh, was working with, I'm the chairman of a telemarketing company called Sales Driven. And Sales Driven works on behalf of a number of software companies. And we ran a piece of technology called White Rabbit. And White Rabbit Intel allows you to identify the people who are moving from passive looking where they want to be anonymous to active looking where they will welcome a well-targeted sales call. Mm -hmm. And uh, we identified the chief operating officer of a huge multi-billion construction company. And it turned out that she had an 83% probability of welcoming a call from this particular client of ours. So we spent about 20 minutes, me and the rep, developing an 18-word email, which she read whilst on the treadmill in the gym. She booked a call. Eight minutes later, we had a meeting for our client. Now, that kind of efficiency is out there if you choose to invest in it. But what people have done is they've blown a shitload of money on technology spaghetti, most of which they don't understand the functionality. Most of the functionality is duplicated, and they're spending half a million, a million a year more on a load of tech that they don't need. There's a myth in the MarTech market that you can provide personalization at scale. No, you can't. You can provide relevance at scale. You can't provide personalization at scale. And the problem is that most of these technology stacks that people have just create noise. If you map out the customer journey, the first thing they do when they have a problem is they make space for it. After they've made space and they've let it mull for a while, then they look passively and they're trying to learn how they might solve the problem. In both of those phases, and that's most of your total addressable market, 95 to 98% of them fit in there. They will not welcome a sales call. But what do marketing and sales departments do? They bombard them with, with this barrage of marketing morphine. They interrupt their day and try and sell them on a meeting. Whilst being poorly timed, contextually irrelevant, and offering no value to them where they are. Yep. You have to meet your customer where they are, not where you want them to be. Um, identify those who have exclusively moved from passive to active looking. And you've got to be relevant to them. Your timing is important. And there is stuff out there that will help you to do this. 
the email sequences that Justin Michael talks about, these spheres, allow you to break into their psyche and have them invite you to take the call. Justin did a campaign uh, on behalf of a client of his about four weeks ago. 130 dials, 88 effectives, 33 meetings booked in a day for one client, one person. Now, you combine that with a technology like White Rabbit and the email spheres and all of this kind of stuff, and you can eliminate 95 to 98% of the wasted effort that your SDR team, your marketing team, and your AEs, which means that they can either not have to recruit more people with sales driven, we're able to generate 14 times more productivity from one SDR every day. Yeah. I mean, just let that sink in for a minute. And the productivity for you is real productivity, not activity yeah. metrics. It's meetings, Absolutely. qualified meetings. Yeah. And the important thing is by freeing up that time, your reps now have time to do proper research. Yeah. They have time to plan. They have time to rehearse. After the call, they have time to debrief and lesson capture and plan the next conversation. Now, that makes the conversations infinitely more valuable. That shortens the sales cycle. It reduces your hidden cost of sale. It means that you can nurture the pipeline for those prospects who are in passive looking and are likely to move into active in the next quarter um, so that you can be the first port of call when they're ready to have those conversations so you can drive inbound inquiries. Mm-hmm. Between you, me, and the gatepost, I've not done a single cold call in 16 years. I've systematized my referrals. I've built my personal brand. And again, this is the other thing that reps in this day and age. If you don't have a personal brand on social media, in certainly in LinkedIn, probably if you're targeting millennials in Instagram, um, and Facebook, if you're going for the mid, uh, the middle age lot, then you're missing a trick. Um, if you are not moving yourself into a position of the sage, there are four types of seller. My pal Simon Bowen talks about uh, the pill pusher, and that's where 98% of reps are. They basically, they're selling aspirin. No one wants to pay a lot of money for a pill like that. Okay, so that in the absence of value, the conversation rapidly descends into price. Then uh, you've got the subject matter expert. Now, LinkedIn is filled Mm -hmm. with all of these charlatans saying that cold calling is dead and buy my product. And people come to subject matter experts um, because they're looking for a solution to their problem. And most of them are looking for magic dust. Let me be clear, doesn't exist. Okay. You don't suddenly turn up and sprinkle this magic dust on stuff. You have to do a load of work. You've got to learn how to be relevant, timely, and valuable. You've got to practice and prepare. All the heavy lifting has to happen. So um, the next level up is the hero seller. Mm -hmm. And people come to the hero because they're looking to be defended, and these people have strength. So they're the ones that beat their chest and tell you what you have to do and all this kind of stuff. And they build a cult following. And then there is a massive gap between the hero and the sage. And the sage is somebody who people come to for their wisdom. They are people who are perceived by their customers as a trusted partner. Yeah, They they are a growth partner. They're integral to their business. 
this is the trusted advisor that we've been talking about. Yeah, I, I, I would go further than just an advisor. They are now part of the team. Yeah. Uh, an advisor whispers in your ear. Um, and I, I had this conversation with Charlie Green, and he agrees. You know, that now we've got to move further. Yeah. We've got to become integral to their business. And if you're selling tech, um, it's even more important because the technology stacks are so complex and so sophisticated that you're just one moving part as a vendor. Unless you're an IBM, I mean, even if you're Oracle, yeah, you've got a suite of stuff, but you probably don't do a whole bundle of stuff. So you've got to learn how to play nicely with your competitors. You know, I, I released a podcast today about how IBM has to collaborate with Google, with AWS, with Microsoft. Yeah, Now they're fierce rivals, but the customer needs them to collaborate. If you don't collaborate with your competition, you'd probably get, just get booted out. And for small vendors, you absolutely have to understand that your success in the future is entirely dependent on your ability to collaborate. So do you think that, we're just kind of hypothesizing here, I guess, with the these 100, you know, top 100 SaaS companies, for example, I mean, do you think that these there's no helping a company that's at that stage? Because this, what you're suggesting here it seems like a huge change, you know, for, for a company to adopt internally, which if they're on board with that and really being more customer centric and, you know, how can we choose quality first, all this sort of stuff. Do you feel like a lot of companies are a lost cause at this point? Or do you think there are some companies that want to change? There are companies out there that want to change, but it's difficult to turn a super tanker. Yeah. And when you've got leadership that has a vested interest in the status quo, it's really tricky. Yeah. So I see this as a God-given opportunity for scale-up companies over the next 10 years to knock those big players off their pedestal Yeah. because they can't change. Nokia invented the smartphone, yeah? Yeah. And their middle management was screaming that we had to go into this. Uh, senior management said, it's not what made us successful. We're going to continue churning out bricks. And you know, where are they now? They're an infrastructure company that's just been sold and bought and sold for a dollar. And uh, Xerox invented the mouse and the graphical user interface. And it was stolen first by Apple, and then it was stolen by Microsoft. And um, you know, you've got lots of examples of this. Polaroid invented the digital camera. It's just crazy. Um, and so what you've got is a really great opportunity. And the challenge is the mindset of the founders or the leaders. Yeah. And what you'll see is breakaways, breakaway companies that are disintermediating. So they're disconnecting the value chain and they're finding another way of uh, addressing the market. You saw this with uh, Airbnb. None of the hotel chains expected this pokey little app to suddenly be the world's largest provider of hospitality accommodation. But in the blink of an eye, they became the dominant force in that space. And everyone, all of a sudden, had to take them seriously. Uber did the same thing. Just Eats are doing the same thing. And I think this is a great opportunity for the mid-market companies to structure themselves for partnership, built around the customer that are heavily centered on developing middle management and building a really good channel. 
what COVID has taught us is breathing someone else's bad air and drinking their terrible coffee is not a superpower. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the road warrior, frankly, they're dead. Yeah. I reckon at the bottom end, the order taker, the commodity seller, that's all going to go onto marketplaces, it's going to go online, and you're going to be replaced by Siri or Alexa. Yeah. Um, AI is now getting to the point where it can practically have a conversation. Uh, I just bought a, a piece of tech to play with that you can create a human avatar and give it your own voice or have a, a number of different voices, and you just type it in, and it says what you want them to. Now, why on God's earth do you need a salesperson if all you're going to be is a talking brochure? Yeah. No, this is crazy. Yeah. This has been a really good conversation, man. I haven't had one of these types of uh, conversations where it's just like, hey, let's just open up the bigger picture here. What's what's going on? You know, and it's not how do we create incremental change. It's how do we make a dramatic shift Yeah. in, in what we're doing? So many action items from this. I love this customer-centric piece. That's that's probably the biggest takeaway for me to reinforce more in the work that I'm doing with reps and with companies is, yeah, I see a complete disregard with managers and leadership are always celebrating sales wins. But I was like, in those Slack channels, how come you don't have wins from your customers? That's what should be shared the most. Like, that's the thing that should get dispersed to the team. Jason, this is the really big question. Okay, um, I'm going to um, share with you a screen uh, and I'll describe it for the audio listeners. Okay. At the heart of every single sales interaction should be buyer safety. Yeah. Every customer deserves to feel safe whenever they are dealing with and engaging with salespeople. And that means they have to be reliable, they have to be relevant, and they have to be responsive. And it depends on rigorous authenticity. That allows customers to lower their guard and open up and be authentic with the salesperson. But the salesperson, in turn, must be vulnerable. That means they must be willing to recommend the competitor where the competitor is a better solution for the customer. Yeah. They must admit when they fuck up, when they don't know something. They have to be ready to enter into constructive conflict. When a customer is about to do something stupid, self-harming, uh, if they are overstepping a boundary, they need to be able to roll up their sleeves and get stuck into a real fight focused on the outcome. And they must communicate with absolute clarity. Yep. If they don't communicate with clarity, ambiguity is the mother of all fuck-ups. It's guaranteed to lead to mismatched expectations, disappointment, confusion. Okay, They have to be centered around the customer. Instead of being self-centered, and this then speaks to another really important question about compensation, which I'll touch on in a second. Uh, if the customer is not at the heart of everything they do, then the customer picks up on that. Yep. So vendor organizations and salespeople must be focused on creating a long-term partnership with the customer. That means you've always got to be thinking, what is the customer? What are the jobs they're trying to get done? How far are they progressing towards getting those jobs done? What are their struggling moments? How can we help them? And what are they trying to do next? Partners help each other to get better. They fight, they argue, and it's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. Mm -hmm. And they need to be able to, they need to master uh, the development of strong, sustainable agreements that weather the test of time, survive change, and survive adversity. And they have to be deeply collaborative. If you do not develop solutions with your customer in partnership with them, 
then chances are you're going to be trying to sell them stuff without actually knowing they want it. If the customer doesn't tell you explicitly, I want this, you have a problem. So you've got to create value and you've got to deliver the outcomes that they pay for. No one buys your product or your service. They rent the outcome for as long as it's relevant to them. Mm -hmm. And so your job as salespeople is to create sustained success over time. When you prospect, you should be prospecting for a customer who will be a customer in 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Otherwise, you're constantly replacing and churning. And this comes to the really important point around compensation. We pay people for the logo win. What we should be doing is paying them a little for the logo win, paying for adoption, paying for consumption, and pay the big payout when the customer gets the outcome. Yeah. And then when they renew, and the big payout on renewal is the third renewal. Mm -hmm. It's not the first one. It's not the second one. It's the third one. If you can get a customer to renew three times in a row, it clearly means you're doing a great job. Yeah. And you're relevant. Yeah. But the problem is that comp plans are focused, fixated selfishly on revenue growth, which is total pish. Okay. I don't care how much revenue you generate unless I've got a broken uh, model, which you look at the uh, gearing. Yeah. Uh, in EdTech, it's 40 times revenue. In cyber, it's 16 to 23 times revenue. You saw Snowflake. Now, great company, great software, not dissing them, but 166 times revenue? Yep. Crazy. So I'll shut up now. (laughs) No, it's all good. (laughs) Dude, this has been great, and uh, we got to run right now, but please tell us where can people go to connect with you, learn more about you before we take off here. This has been a killer episode, man. Thank you. Okay, so uh, I'm Marcus Kauke. You can get a hold of me at marcus at laughs-last.com. That's uh, Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, at L-A-U-G-H-S hyphen L-A-S-T dot com, or DM me on LinkedIn. And I go under the underscore inquisitor on Twitter. And I've got a couple of painful podcasts that will make you cringe. I love what Marcus mentioned around, you know, that connect and sell stat around one out of every 33 calls turning into, you know, an actual opportunity. You know, in seven out of 18 of those meetings, not taking a second meeting and looking at the, just the waste, the amount of waste in that system of calling people that don't pick up, calling people that aren't qualified and don't want a second meeting in it. And of course, a part of this is your ability to sell effectively and prospect effectively as well. But that really about 99 plus percent of most outbound prospecting is complete wasted effort, complete wasted effort and money. So I thought that was really interesting just the hidden costs in everything. So I appreciate you tuning in and uh, I'd love it if you like, subscribe, all that good stuff. If you found some value today and share with one other sales leader or friend or rep that you know would get value from this. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thank you.